The sermon text this morning is from Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 through 12, verses 20 through 22, and Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 17. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, and her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Then God said to Noah, and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So far we've seen seven chapters uh in the book of Genesis. And one of the things 
uh, that's certain in the book of Genesis is that people are bad. Uh, and I'm not talking about bad as in good, like that's bad. Um, it's part of a 1980s joke. No, bad as in bad, right? They're sinners, we are sinners. Uh, we sin against God and one another. Uh, we see this already at the beginning of the book when Adam and Eve rebel against God in the garden. We see this as Cain kills Abel. We see this in a much larger scale when God makes a profound statement about humankind in chapter 6. He says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Um, and if we had any doubts that people are bad, uh, verse 6 of chapter 6 should do away with it. Uh, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. In other words, all people on the earth are bad. It's that simple. Another way to put it is that humanity is depraved, even down to our very thoughts. You know, sometimes I'm around folks who, who want to say that, you know, people are, are good at heart and good natured. And believe me, I want to be like that too. <laughs> but then I want to ask a question. Uh, have you read the Bible? Right? Have you read the first few chapters of Genesis, right? People are bad. But the fact is, uh, a lot of folks haven't read the Bible. So I'll probably try and ask more broader general questions like, have you opened social media lately? Um, have you watched the news? Or have you just been around other human beings? Um, including the, the small ones, perhaps especially uh, the small ones, you know, children, that they look cute and they're lovely, they're made in God, God's image, but they're as depraved as the people described in chapter 6 in Genesis. Uh, and if you have any doubts, just do an experiment. Uh, turn your back on them for just a few minutes, whether you're working in the nursery here at church, at home, you're at a friend's house, uh, and watch what happens, right? There's usually a brief period of silence, and many of us know what the sound or lack of sound uh, feels like. It's kind of an ominous um, feeling. You know something bad is about to happen because you haven't heard the children. Uh, and then you start looking around for them. Uh, you're bound to see one of them trying to escape out a window, another one trying to steal gum out of your purse, uh, or take graham crackers out of a closet or cabinets. Still, another one has your car keys, right? This happened to me many times, especially as I'm headed out the door. And you wonder whether they're trying to drive off your car, or they want to hide your keys in some remote part of the house or building. Uh, personally, I haven't eliminated either of these possibilities, or any others uh, for that matter, because people are bad. Even the little ones, perhaps especially uh, the little ones. Uh, we see this point in the Bible. We see it all around us, right? We experience it every day. It's an inescapable reality. But we also see in Genesis that God is good. Uh, he created all things, including people, so good that even in his judgment, which humanity rightly deserves because of sin, he provides salvation or the hope of salvation. We see this when Adam and Eve sin and God judges them, but he gives them the hope that one day one will come to deliver them from the curse and return life to the way it was in Eden, to give them a new creation, a hope that is carried throughout the scriptures and fulfilled 
in the book of Revelation when humanity dwells with God in a new heavens and a new earth, this uh, new creation, if you will. And certainly while Genesis contributes to this larger story, it has its own structure. That is, there's a certain theological reason why Genesis is organized the way it is. And we can think of this flow, at least in chapters 1 through 9, our context uh, for our passage today, in terms of sin, I'm sorry, uh, creation, right? God creates all things. Uh, Sin, humanity falls into sin and judgment as God judges the world through a flood and, if you will, decreates uh, all he has made, returning it to this uncreated, uh, watery existence, if you will. And lastly, restoration. Following the flood, he restores the earth, brings about a renewal or a new creation, if you will. So again, these four movements are creation, sin, judgment, and restoration. The passage we're covering today, uh, Genesis 1, um, I'm sorry, Genesis 8, 1 through 9, 17, falls within these latter two movements of judgment and restoration. We see Genesis 8, 1 through 14 is found at the end of the judgment of the decreation of the earth as the floodwaters are receding and 8, 15, 9 through 17 envisions a world that has now been renewed or recreated into which Noah and his family are delivered. So we'll follow this basic division of judgment and renewal as we look at our passage today. And as we look at our passage, the very first verse, it says that in verse 8-1, it says that God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him on the ark. So the idea of remembering here, we we tend to think that somebody forgets something, so it's recall to mind, or we have to kind of uh, conjure something back uh, to our memories, but um, the word remembering in the Old Testament can have also a different connotation. That is, acting on someone's behalf, usually to save them from death or some other perilous or difficult situation. And here we see that salvation and death applies in this context as God acts to deliver Noah and the animals from the water or the waters of judgment. So God acts, he remembers to deliver Noah and all the animals from the waters of judgment. But also another point applies here in that God didn't remember Noah because of his character or his obedience. Surely Noah was described as upright, but it doesn't mean he was perfect. It means he was trying to live faithfully, seeking repentance and following God, but by no means was Noah sinless, right? We certainly see later on in chapter 9 how Noah falls into sin. So God does not act to save Noah because he deserved it or merited it uh, of any way of his own behalf whatsoever. Instead, God graciously acts to save Noah and all those on the ark with him. He extends grace to them. He gives them what they do not deserve. And that's the character of God we see throughout Scripture. People are bad. They're sinners. We are sinners who who deserve judgment, but God gives us grace. He gives us mercy. No one deserves it because what we deserve is what Noah's generation got, and that's judgment because of our sin. But God simply acts out of his own gracious 
character to save people who are completely undeserving of his saving grace. To bring things a little closer to home, we don't deserve salvation any more than Noah or anybody else we can possibly think of who we may compare ourselves to. Instead, because of our sin, we deserve what Noah's generation got, right? Uh, Judgment, to be wiped out. But instead, God gives us grace as well in sending Jesus to redeem us from the bondage, the curse of sin and death and raise us to life in a new creation where sin will have been eradicated forever in a similar way to the way he now in this text saves Noah and his family into a recreated earth. So if we think we deserve God's grace, we're fooling ourselves. We don't deserve salvation any more than Noah and his family. What should be our posture then? Our heart should be grateful for the redemption we have now and will fully experience at the resurrection through Jesus Christ. So there's no reason for boasting whatsoever because God acts mercifully to save us only by his grace. Instead then, we should be grateful for the freely unmerited gift of salvation we have received in Jesus Christ. So back in verse 2 of our text, uh, it says that God made a wind to blow over all the earth and the waters subsided. So here we see the picture of the judgment of decreation or the flood coming to an end as God's remembrance of Noah starts the process of drying out the land and receding the floodwaters. Interestingly, the same, here used tra- the same word here translated wind can also mean spirit. So what likely is going on here, many commentators would say, is that we have an allusion back to Genesis 1, as you so often have in this passage of judgment and also restoration or renewal. Uh, we see here in Genesis 1 where the divine spirit, right, as this word can also be translated as spirit, is hovering over the watery mass just before God forms everything, gives it shape, if you will. Um, so what Genesis 8 is likely doing here is presenting the flooded world as one that has been returned to its watery or pre-created state that is without form, without shape. But what God now does in chapters 8 and 9 is he begins the process of removing the flood waters from the earth, concluding the decreation or the judgment of the entire planet because of sin. So slowly, the flood waters now begin to recede, and we see now the mountaintops once again revealed, showing that God's judgment is slowly receding, uh, the waters are receding, uh, the decreation of the earth is coming to an end. But the process takes months. As water recedes, Noah sends a raven and then a dove, sends a dove twice. And at last in verse 11, the dove returns with a freshly picked olive leaf in his mouth, signaling to Noah and the flood water, that Noah and signaling to Noah the flood waters had receded from the earth. And then verses 13 through 14 tell us that the waters have completely receded from the earth and had now dried out. It says it three times that the earth was now dry, emphasizing that God's hand of judgment has now been removed from the world. The process of judgment and decreation is over. It's now time for a renewed creation. And that's the way God works in Scripture, right? We see how his judgment gives way to 
restoration, right? God judges Noah's world, and then he renews it. Another place, God judges the Israelites because of their sin, so he exiles them, but then he intends to restore them to a better land. God judges Jesus on our behalf for our sin, but then he raises him from the grave, right? Judgment does not last forever, usually in Scripture. It usually gives way to restoration. And as painful as judgment may be, it has a purpose, right? God has a purpose for judgment. That is to restore, to cleanse, to make new. I know as we read a text like this, some of us may be wondering, well, is this the way God works with me? If I sin, is God going to judge me? Or is it kind of tit for tat this way? And I'm not talking about here about final judgment. We're talking about the here and now everyday life. If, if I sin, does God judge me? Will he judge me as severely as he judged Noah and his, or Noah's generation? Um, it's an honest question. It's one that many of us wonder about, many of us struggle with, and it's an honest question, one I think we should be asking, which reminds me of an article I read recently on the Gospel Coalition website, uh, written by a pastor named Femi Osunui, a pastor in Lagos, uh, Lagos, Nigeria. And he answered the question this way, yes and no. No in the sense that believers will not be eternally punished for their sins because God has already judged them in Christ's death, right? So no in that sense. But yes, in the sense that God judges us with discipline as his children when we have unrepented sin in our lives. But his punishment is for correction and discipline. It has a very good purpose. It's what we should expect of us as children of God. It shows that God loves us enough not to leave us in our sin, but to discipline us, but to judge us for our sin. As Hebrews 12 says, he disciplines the one whom he loves and chastens the one he accepts as children or the ones he accepts as children. But his goal is that judgment might lead to restoration, right? He judges our sin with the goal of leading us into a restored relationship with him and our neighbor whom we have offended, where that offended party might be, including God, might be also our spouse, child, friend, coworker, neighbor, whoever it is. But to be clear, just because we experience suffering or painful circumstances does not mean that God is necessarily judging us. He could be, but... It also may not be the case, all right? There isn't necessarily a one-to-one correspondence between sin and immediate judgment, right? Or corresponding judgment. The fact is we live in a sinful, fallen world affected by the curse and difficult things unfortunately happen like the loss of employment, disease, or awful accidents. So again, suffering is not necessarily the result of our own sin, but sometimes it may be. Sometimes God may be chasing us as children so that we would be restored to fellowship with him and other believers because sin separates. It breaks fellowship. We see this with gossip, slander, envy, and so many other sins we can possibly think of. So maybe this is a good time to evaluate ourselves. If we sense suffering, um, 
we have to ask ourselves, we should ask ourselves, are we living in unrepentant sin? May God be trying to get our attention uh, by judging us that we might be repent and be restored into relationship with him and rightly with others as well. Again, this might not always be the case, but it's important to reflect just in case it is the case if we in fact are enduring painful circumstances right now. We should ask God's Spirit to show us why we're suffering such difficulty that perhaps if we are because of sin, we might be led to restoration with God and others because judgment is supposed to lead to our restoration. It's for our good, if you will. But just a different way to look at this as well, if you're not a follower of Jesus, this really doesn't apply to you in the same way. Uh, Maybe you're visiting, maybe you've been here a long time. In that case, as awful as it sounds and as uh, difficult as, as, as it does sound, in that case, judgment remains upon you because of sin. All right? It's what we all deserve. It's what no's generation deserve, right? To, be, to suffer the penalty, the judgment of sin. But the hope is that we would trust in the one who has already been judged on our behalf for our sin so that we might be restored to fellowship with God and others, right? Because judgment is supposed to lead to restoration. And the judgment that was poured out on Jesus is so that we might be raised to life and restored to right fellowship with God. So now as we come to the second half of this text, we see how God now renews the earth. So after the earth dries, in verse 15, God commands Noah and his family to go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth. It goes out by families from the ark. So here we now see the process of restoration, of restoring the creation that has been judged, once again bringing creatures into the world. This is akin to the way Genesis 1 creates people and animals and puts them into a world that was once nothing but a watery mass, but has now been formed, given shape and given order. And as he brings Noah and his family, uh, he tells them to be fruitful and multiply, right? The very same call he gives to humans in the original creation account in Genesis 1. Here we see the restoration, the renewal, the repopulation uh, of the creation as humans spread out throughout the earth and are called to exercise dominion over, right? But this is not a harsh dominion. Uh, It's one that's to be a caring one, a conscious one, in which they steward well, we steward well, the creation God has placed under our authority. Now, just after God sets his creation, his new creation, a restored creation into motion, in 820, Noah makes an altar and offers a sacrifice of every clean animal and bird. Now, although most translations don't reflect this idea, uh, the sense here is that Noah offers a whole burnt offering. When this kind of offering is presented in the Pentateuch, it's done joyfully. It's done freely and with thanksgiving, all right? It's not this kind of offering is not used to expiate or to remove sin. It is. But the fact is, already here in Genesis, we see that God has dealt with sin through a flood. So Noah's response with this whole burnt offering is one of thanksgiving, that God has delivered him and his family through the flood waters of 
judgment, right? What else is this but the proper response of faith, responding rightly to the God in whom Noah trusts, all right? So Noah, then, is an example of how we respond to the God who has saved us by judging his own son on the cross, Jesus Christ, pouring out on him the wrath that we deserve, right? We respond in faith. We respond in trust, right? But this faith is not just a mere uh, cognitive assent, if you will. It requires us to offer our whole lives as whole burnt offerings to the Lord, right? Paul, for instance, in Romans 12, 1, calls us to present our bodies, our whole selves, as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Also in Ephesians 5, 2, Paul compares the way Jesus offered his life to the way we offer our lives as sacrifices by walking in love, right? Like Noah, we respond in faithfulness, right? We offer our whole lives, our faith and obedience to the God who has acted to save us in Jesus Christ, delivering us from wrath and giving us new life. And what happens when we offer this proper act of worship? What we see in our text in verse 21 that God um, when Noah offers his sacrifice, God smells a pleasing aroma. That is, when Noah offered God was a pleasing sacrifice to God, right? In the same way, we offer ourselves as sacrifices, and God is pleased through Jesus Christ, just as he was with Noah, right? This is our proper act of worship. It's what's expected of believers throughout history, all right, not just, uh, not just assent to the right beliefs, which is important, without which we are not Christians, right belief in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, all right, but it's our everything, right? It's our faith, our lives, everything we have to offer to God, our whole selves are to be offered to God as whole burnt offerings, if you will. Sometimes this idea of both faith and obedience, all of us that we offer to God is presented well with faithfulness to the God who has saved us in Jesus Christ. Now, as we continue on this passage, God promises never again to bring universal judgment or destruction upon the earth. Instead, he promises to continue the rhythms of the earth. The text says seed, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. The world will Continue, if you will. The promise to, to never again bring universal judgment is later on in 9, 8 through 17, crystallized uh, in terms of a covenant with Noah, in which God promises in verses 9, 8 through 11, he says, to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And this sign uh, for this covenant shall be a bow in the sky, which is a reminder of what God promised that never again will he destroy the earth by means of a flood. All right. But this begs the question, why? Right? Why not judge humanity again? Why not 
destroy us, wipe us out, right? We deserve it. After all, people are bad. We're all sinful. We all do deserve to be wiped off the face of the earth. So again, why not? Why not do it? Right? Why does God prom- promise not to judge the earth again by means of a flood, not to bring about universal destruction? I think verse 821 here is the key. All right? The verse says, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. In other words, we're evil, right? From our youth, from a young age, we are evil, right? There are no exceptions, right? The solution then is not wiping everyone out and starting all over again, because we'll go right back to murdering, hating, being divisive, slandering, lying, cheating, on and on and on, right? We see depravity already after God has judged the earth and brought Noah through. We see depravity already in chapter nine, which we'll cover next week. Um, Why? Because we are all Evil, right? Down to our very intentions. We are bad. We are depraved, if you will. All right? We are polluted with sin. As Paul says, we are in Adam, right? There's no escape again. Humanity is totally depraved, right? We are totally depraved. So what then is the solution, right? There must be a better way to restore things to their Edenic state, right? And there is. Perhaps we can see this best through a Pauline lens in Romans 6, 23, where Paul says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we've already seen the first half of this verse, right? The wages of sin is death, right? Sin deserves judgment. Uh, It's what we earn. It is our wage, if you will. Right? Adam and Eve sinned and God said, you will die, and they did, and everyone after them. Um, and we'll die too one day, unless Jesus returns before then. Right? You also see this in Noah's generation. Right? Their sin made them worthy of death. It's what they got. It was their wage, what they, what they deserved, if you will. So sin merits death, or sin merits judgment. Right? But God would not leave things this way. He made the world, and he made us as well. So here's where the second half of Romans 6, 23 comes in. Right? God sends Jesus to Redeem a world in the throes of sin and death to give us eternal life, right? Now, in Genesis, uh, we're talking about an actual world, right? So God cares about it so much that he renews it, all right? You see this theme also throughout Scripture, right? This is consistent with the testimony of all the Bible, that God is concerned about the physical stuff that he has made, right? People and everything else. So we can't think of eternal life uh, in terms of getting rid of our bodies and all the physical stuff and being free from, into some kind of spiritual realm forever where we're all listening to classical music, right? Because who likes that stuff anyway? Um, one of the texts we can look at is Romans 8, which talks about the creation groaning for the revelation or the resurrection of the sons and daughters of God so that it too might be delivered from the curse. In other words, what we anticipate, this eternal life, is what Paul and so many, so many others throughout redemptive history have anticipated, right? It's living forever, eternal life in a new creation, akin to the way Noah and his family are brought into a restored earth, right? So we all deserve death. We all deserve to suffer the effects of the curse forever, judgment. But God knows that this is not the answer. 
this will not lead to the permanent renewal of all that he has made. All right? So God is gracious to give us eternal life in Jesus Christ, right? Life that begins now and will be culminated when he raises us and the creation, all he has made when he returns. All right? That's why in Genesis 8 through 9, the solution is not to destroy the earth again, but to give us life in a better one. And this life is not earned or merited in any way, right? It's the free gift that we have in Christ Jesus, right? It is all his grace. As we return to our text, we see the present world will continue and people will continue to fill the earth and multiply. Yet in this renewed creation, things won't go exactly back to the way they were in the garden. In verse 9-2, in place of harmony between animals, as you saw in the original creation, there'll be fear and dread. In 9-3, now people can also eat not just plants, but also animals only without blood. So the diet has changed with restrictions, of course. And in verse 4-7, through there's an important distinction between animals and human beings. You can't kill a person the way you would an animal because a person is created in God's image. Again, echoing back what we hear in Genesis 1. All right, these people are to be fruitful. They are to multiply and subdue the earth. That's what we do as humans. And human life is so sacred that the blood is required of anyone who sheds the blood of another human being. That's the principle, life for life, if you will. It doesn't mean this is a call to be vigilantes or take justice uh, into our own hands. All right? But the principle is here. Don't murder another human being or your life will be required of you. It's that serious. So as human beings settle into this restored creation, in Genesis 8 through 9, there's already the assumption that there will be sin. There will be hostility between people and animals and even retributive justice for murder. This is far from the ideal existence we once had in Eden. And by the way, this is the very world that we're living in right now. Just look around us. It's all there. Murder, strife, enmity, it's all present. So there must be something better that is to come. And there is. But this future is mixed with both judgment and restoration. We see future judgment in a text like Luke 17, which draws on the story of Noah and the flood to make its point about future judgment, which is common uh, throughout the New Testament. Luke 17, 26 through 27 says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man, when Jesus returns. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. All We see this this idea again in Matthew and 1 Peter. This is certainly what the world deserves because of sin, in line with the text like Romans 6, 23. But of course, Christ's future judgment is also linked to the restoration of the earth. Again, judgment and restoration, it's a pattern we see throughout Scripture. We see a picture of a restored world where God's enemies are judged. In Isaiah's description of a new heavens and new earth, as well as Revelation's description of the very same place, which he describes with Edenic imagery. That is, a creation has been restored, redeemed, delivered from sin, death, and the curse, where God's people are raised to life 
to dwell with the one who was judged on their behalf, Jesus, the Messiah. Now this judgment and restoration again that we see in Genesis 8 through 9, it fits a pattern that anticipates a greater judgment and a greater restoration in the eschaton or in the end of all things, if you will. And those who are in Christ will be delivered from the wrath to come and restored to this new and better creation. So as we think about the entirety of Genesis 8 through 9, the story of the flood certainly is a very real and historical showing of how the floodwaters of judgment give way to the restoration of the earth. It's true. It's historical. It's in the Bible. Yet this story, it fits within the larger story of Scripture. It's not an end in itself, if you will. It's a very real historical account that points forward to a very real historical consummation of all things, where the wicked will be judged, but God's people will be resurrected to dwell in a far better place. As we see both judgment and restoration in our passage here, which points forward to a much better judgment and restoration that's still to come. And Christians have the hope of being delivered because of the one who was judged on our behalf and raised on our behalf as well, giving us life. As we think of this flood story, there's one more connection we have to make, which Peter also makes in his in a First Peter, especially as we think about celebrating baptism today. In First Peter uh, three, Peter makes an analogy between the flood waters in Genesis and baptism. At the water that flooded Noah's Noah's world functions as a type or a model for. Christians, as God delivered Noah and his family through the waters of judgment, so believers who come up out of the waters testify that God has delivered them from the judgment of sin and raised them to new life through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So as we celebrate baptisms later on today, we can look at these baptisms as powerful testimonies of people that have been delivered through judgment, which the waters represent, and have been raised to new life in Christ, which is what we picture when they come up out of the waters. These are people who are beneficiaries of God's grace. We are beneficiaries of God's grace, just like Noah and every other believer throughout history. Let's take a moment now to to bow our heads and let's reflect on the grace that we have in Christ, not getting the judgment we deserve, but new life in Christ, which is pictured today in baptism.